What would you do if your spouse, your partner, was killed in an accident? Then, six months later, you found out there was nothing accidental about it. Would you go to the police? Would you put your life on hold? Would you fake your own death to resurrect your CIA cover so you could dismantle the killer bit by bleeding bit? Murder is filthy business. Good thing Diamond plays dirty. All three books are now available individually and as a box set. Start with Widow's Run, Defenestrate with Suicide Squeeze, and then wrap it up with Psychotherapy. From T.G. Wolf, available everywhere from Down and Out Books. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. All stories are structured to challenge you to beat the detective to the solution. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. For season six, Jack and I have again decided to go ad-free. I do this because I love mysteries, and Jack does it because he loves me. Jack may be a starving college student, but that's about to change because winter break is starting. We do ask you to support the writers of our show. You can find them all on our website at tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. This is season six, Things That Go Jack in the Night. This season contains truly imaginative mysteries around one of the most common words in the English language. From the brandy distilled from hard cider known as Applejack, to that nefarious one-eyed Jack, to the animals, vegetables, fruits, tools, weapons, and slang, the word Jack is, the way the word Jack is used in the English language is truly unique, inventive, and too numerous for us to count. And yes, it's also the name of my piano player and producer. For episode 11, a jackpot is the featured jack. This is The Crackpot's Jackpot by me, T.G. Wolf. A Time to Die I rounded the corner with my beat partner as we headed to the police station. Sweat beaded and rolled down my face, dripping onto my badge numbered 165. The summer of 1895 was proving to be one for the record books. A Scot by heritage, my body was made for a different kind of summer. Fellow patrolman John Henry Watson, badge number 142, had been raised in Mississippi and didn't seem to notice that the temperature and the humidity were one and the same. You should have seen it, Grant. The crab has an arm like a rifle, all the way from left field and out at the plate. John Henry not only reenacted the play at the top of the ninth that ensured the Cleveland Spiders crawled away with the win. You should have seen it, he said. I feel like I have seen it, I said, quickening his pace over the final block back to the station and to our mid-shift break. I have tickets for our off day. You can come with me. John Henry leapt ahead of me and into the station. Too many hot days meant the inside was as warm as the outside with the added bonus of a stench that comes from too many bodies too close together. It was enough to make a man appreciate winter. McPherson, in my office! Lieutenant Amos O'Hurley, batch number 56, shouted the order loud enough to make every head turn. What did you do? John Henry asked. I sighed loudly. Why do you have to assume it's bad? I turned away before he could list a litany of sins, but yes, I wondered what I did. I stepped into the scowling man's office. Twenty minutes later, hotter and out of breath, I leaned one of the department's bicycles under a large picture window. Child's Time was bowled across the top. Beneath read Emmett Child's Horologist. Even if I hadn't known Horologist referred to a watchmaker, the presentation of clocks and watches of every size in the window would have said all I needed to know. I opened the door and stepped in. The room was rectangular, divided with clocks on the right and watches on the left. A counter separated the customer side from the craftsman. A workbench was neatly laid out with tools of the trade and two clocks in the midst of repair. 
yet-to-be-started items were in lines on the right, finished projects to the left. Detective Kean Kelly's voice, with its Irish lilt, came through the doorway at the back of the shop. Never had a chance, he did. I eagerly walked through the doorway to the back, thrilled to be asked to assist on another case. The scene was blocked by the mountain of the man, who was my acting superior. I um, cleared my throat and announced myself. Detective, you sent for me? About time, McPherson. Kelly had thick blonde hair with gray eyes that could go stormy in an instant. He stepped aside to reveal our victim on the floor of a small kitchen with a man bent over him. That man looked up and I saw my own face. Father, what are you doing here? Confusion was foremost in my mind. Was he a customer of this watchmaker? Had he discovered the victim? Detective Kelly sent for me, my father said, his gaze dropping to the patient he'd lost. But the poor devil was beyond my help. The man with his chest bare had a black and blue streak across it. The face was swollen, bloody, beaten. He could have been 20, he could have been 50. He was tall with long limbs and a slim build. The hair on his chest was a mix of light brown and silver. He went into shock, Father said remorsefully, if we had only gotten here sooner. He didn't die easily, I said, kneeling on the other side of the body. It took time for the bruising to come to the surface. Blood had to be flowing. Same with the swelling. Emmett Childs died five minutes ago, Kelly told me, but he was beaten some four to six hours prior. My father, Dr. Ewan McPherson, had been the foremost surgeon in Edinburgh, Scotland. Months before my birth, the medical department of Western Reserve University had made him an offer. My father moved his family, his practice, and his research to Cleveland. Now he looked at Detective Kelly with a small smile on his face. Reading the medical journals in your off time. Reading isn't my thing, doctor, Kelly cracked his knuckles. My experience with bruising is firsthand. I found it! I found it! Triumph lit a female voice as it did the face of the woman who rushed into the room, a bloodied baseball bat in her gloved hand. I glared at Kelly. You brought my sister to a crime scene? Time stands still. The 20-year-old woman with the radiant smile wore a blue skirt embroidered with flowers and a stylish white blouse. My sister, Payne, was the picture of a modern woman. Until she wasn't. Hello, Grant. Detective, look what I found. Payne held out the bat to Kelly. I was examining the poor man's gardens. He made a sundial, one of the oldest known clocks, out of money plants. There were footprints in the freshly overturned ground pointing to the back of the property, where I found this. That would do the job, Kelly said, reaching for the bat. A moment, Kelly, my father said, rising to standing. Alistair's been reading about the advances in finger markings. It may be that Mr. Child's killer left his on the bat. If the Cleveland police do not have experts, I humbly volunteer my brother. He is quite confident that he can duplicate the methods pioneered by Scotland Yard. Kelly nodded as though I had confirmed his own opinion. You can have it for 24 hours, McPherson. He doesn't need a day, Payne said with a chuckle. Come over for dinner and you'll have your answers. Payne, I said sharply. I'm sure the detective has better things to do with a Saturday night. I appreciate the invitation, Miss Payne, Kelly said with a gentlemanly bow, and I accept. What do you think happened, I asked, redirecting Kelly away from my grinning sister. Stepping into the center of the room, Kelly rewound time. Emmett Childs was in this room early this morning. The milkman came and delivered his goods, took the empties. His visitor came in through the back door. The front door to the store was locked until I opened it myself. Mr. Childs lit the stove and boiled water, he said, moving to the gas stove. He shook the kettle. The sound told us it was nearly empty. A tin canister of tea sat on the adjacent counter, the lid off. He made two cups of tea and sat at the table with a man or a woman who would be his killer. Do you really suspect a woman, I asked him. Depends on the woman, Kelly answered. Take barroom Maggie. Just last week it took three of us to get her into the tank. McGillicuddy's arm still isn't right. 
But to your point, it would take a woman of extraordinary strength where any man could achieve the damage. Indeed, the baseball mat had not just been taken to Mr. Child's person, but to his kitchen. The table and chairs were overturned, the tin mugs and a small glass vase with flowers had hit the wall, indicating the ferocity that had sent them flying. Payne crossed her arms. Mr. Childs used tin mugs. If he'd been entertaining a woman, he would undoubtedly have used cups and saucers. You would agree, Kelly said, setting a chair upright, that while throwing plates and vases are a woman's prerogative, throwing tables and chairs are not? Cookery makes a much more accurate missile than furniture, Payne said, smiling. Anything of note stick out to you, Father? I cut off any attempt at ritty repertoire between the pair. My father ran his fingers over the bare chest. The blow broke a few ribs and punctured a lung. The ones to the face broke his jaw, nose, and cheekbone. Kelly knelt and lifted the child's and lifted child's hand. The bones are broken. He tried to block the blow. Let me collect a set of the victim's prints for elimination, I said. The theory behind finger marks was that every person had a unique combination of swirls and dips. The marks could be raised by ink, paint, or other substance. Having none of those, I lit a candle and waited as the wax melted. Hold his hand open. Kelly did and we collected the impressions, which were placed in a cup and given to my father. Alistair and I will be begin work directly, he said, sweeping his arm around Payne, and both of them headed toward the door. Arrive at six, Payne said over her shoulder. Murder before dinner, of course. Time to point the finger. Kelly ushered Mr. William Harper, the man who discovered Child's body, from the police-issued carriage. Sweat rolled down his ashen face as he stepped foot on the grass. How is Emmett? His eyes held hope. Will he be all right? Kelly shook his head. Mr. Child succumbed to his injuries. How? Oh, Emmett, Harper said mournfully. He was a dandy detective, a true gentleman. Oh, sure, he had his quirks, but don't we all? Surely that isn't a reason to, to brutalize a man that way. To be sure, Kelly said solemnly. Tell us of your visit. Well, I came over this morning to apologize. Emmett and I had an argument last night. He has a daughter, Sadie, by his second wife. I was, well, I am sweet on Sadie. I asked Emmett's permission to marry her. When he refused, well, I said some unkind things, untrue things. Harper ran his hands through his hair, tugging on the tufts. I knew something was wrong right away, he said. The back door was ajar. Emmett is particular about some things. He wouldn't leave it open. I called out his name and stepped inside. I saw, I saw. We know what you saw, Mr. Harper, I said gently. Did you go to Mr. Childs? He nodded, swallowing hard. I knelt down, praying when I'm not a godly man. He was breathing. I don't know how, but he was. I hurried out the front door and called for help. No one was around. I ran toward Sheriff Street and the markets where I knew patrolmen were on duty. They came back with me. Tell us about Mr. Childs, Kelly said, beyond him being a watchmaker. Horologist, Harper corrected. He was a devoted father to Sadie. She's away visiting her aunts in Oberlin. Emmett is in his early 50s. He has a talent for mechanisms and numbers. That is what made him good at the poker tables. He paused, pulling his shoulders back. There was something going on between Emmett and Woody, that is, Marcus Woodmans. He runs the parlor where Emmett and I play. His muscle, Jimmy McKean, well, he's mean enough to do something like this. Do you think Woody could have sent Jimmy after Emmett? We'll look into it, Kelly assured him. Where do you live, Harper? What do you do for a living? I live the next street over, on Eagle, and I work down at the tannery, the bottom of the hill on the river. He shook his head. I don't see what this has to do with Emmett's murder. Routine, Kelly shrugged dismissively. Besides, the back door being open, did you notice anything else out of place? Let me think. 
Harper cratered his elbow in one hand and bit down on his thumb. Wait, I, I did notice something. One of the Cleveland spiders brought Emmett a bat to mount on a plaque. It was a ruse. Burkett was sweet on Sadie. The bat was an excuse to visit her. It was missing when I went through the shop. He straightened, his chin coming up. Do you think, what if Emmett turned him down too? Kelly furrowed his brows. Burkett, you said? Jesse Burkett? Time to weep. I stayed around the house until Miss Sadie Childs returned. Until that time, Katie ga Kelly gave me a list of duties of talking to the neighbors, inspecting the house top to bottom, and searching Emmett Childs' records for his watch shop and his less legal financial interests. The woman next door confirmed the milkman had come that morning just before her clock struck eight. It was their usual man and he visited with his usual efficiency. She did not see the milkman or anyone else go to the child's home until shortly before noon. She was in her garden when William Hardy cut through Mr. Child's rear yard. I searched the home and learned about the man. He had a love for mechanics and mathematics. Sitting at his workbench, I perused his order log, which featured the homes of Cleveland's rich and famous. Flipping the pages, I found three separate entries for Mr. Jesse Burkett. The most recent was for the baseball bat. As Harper had said, Childs had taken a commission to fashion a timepiece and plaque to the bat. The same day Burkett dropped off the bat, he picked up a mantle clock diagnosed as overwound. A month before, a pocket watch needed cleaning out of, quote, excess sand. The outer door to the shop opened, and a woman of my own age was waving toward the street. Goodbye, I'll see you next Saturday. She laughed at the object of her attention, then entered the store. Oh, father, you will not believe. Who are you? I rose from her father's seat. Miss Childs? Cleveland police? Her eyes scanned the room. Have, have we been burgled? Where's my father? Kelly had coached me, but it didn't make the task easier. I'm sorry, miss. Your father died earlier today. I hurried her upstairs to the library where tears flowed freely, but quietly. I made her a cup of tea, giving her time to collect herself. Thank you, patrolman, she said softly, cupping the delicate china in her hands. What can you tell me about my father's death? I walked through the facts, softening the edges. When she knew everything, I switched from answering to asking. Tell me about your father. Help me know him. She smiled involuntarily. My father was wonderful. There was no other like him. Oh, if you ask around, you'll hear that he was an odd bird, and, and he was, but in a beautiful way. He was brilliant. He could have been a mathematician, but he loved his clocks. He was happiest sitting at his workbench, tinkering, talking to the timepieces. I know a few men like him, I said, thinking of my own family. Brilliant, if unconventional. Did anyone have reason to harm your father? No, she said adamantly. My father wasn't that kind of man. Most didn't notice him, and those who did dismissed him as eccentric. He was harmless. I'm sure he was, I said. According to his records, he worked for some of the most well-known families in Cleveland. Could he have made an enemy there? She shook her head, denying the question before I finished asking it. Repairing the grandfather clocks of a Ford or a Hannah doesn't make you enemies, patrolman. It did put food on the table and provide entry into other homes. It should be said that none of those people hired my father. Their staff did. I doubt he met a single member of the family. What of yourself, Miss Childs? I asked. Could a suitor or a disgruntled beau have done this to move your father aside? No, patrolman, she said. My last two boyfriends left me. My current fellow is as fond of my father as he is of me. He would never, never do something like this. His name, I asked? Jesse Burkett, he plays for the Cleveland Spiders. She narrowed his eyes. Just because his nickname is the Crab doesn't mean he could or would kill my father. We met at the start of the season, she said. He brought in a pocket watch for repair. He and my father got along very well. Her loyalty was admirable, but was it well-founded? What if I told you the bat he brought in was the murder weapon? 
I would say Jesse is far too smart a man to select his own bat as a weapon. She crossed her arms stubbornly. Certainly, you have something better than that. What about William Harper, I asked, leaving her to fill in the story. She stared at me, puzzled when I said nothing. He was a contender for your affection? Her laughter cut off my sentence. No, sir, I assure you, a man old enough to be my father was not in contention. Miss Childs, Mr. Harper asked for your father's permission to marry you. They argued after your father turned him away. She sobered, sitting taller. If Mr. Harper harbors feelings for me, they have been unexpressed and are not reciprocated. I'm not inclined to become the wife of a gambler, a poor one at that. It is a ridiculous notion. He has said nothing more to me than good evening. Her story certainly contradicted Harper's. Your father was a gambler, I said. Did you disapprove of his hobby? No, I did not, she said, for two very good reasons. First, he never gambled more than we could afford to lose. And second, he won more than he lost. He played because he loved the challenge of calculating the odds at the speed of a game. He didn't care about the money. Time for appetizers and dinner. Our grandfather clock struck six and our doorbell rang. There was no doubt of who did the ringing. Kelly's figure was unmistakable. I'll get it, Payne called from her second floor bedroom. I'm right here, I shouted back. You don't need to primp, it's just Kelly. I crossed the foyer and opened the door. Indeed, Keen Kelly stood on the other side, his hair freshly combed, his suit changed. Evening, McPherson, he said, stepping past me. I hope I'm not late. I closed the door behind him. You're right on time, I said, and then muttered, and you know it. Kean, don't you look handsome? Payne cooed from the second floor railing. You are a beautiful sight, Miss Payne. Then Kelly brought out a small bouquet he'd been concealing behind his back. Black-eyed Susan's my favorite, she hurried down the stairs. It's news to me, I mumbled. Uncle Alistair is upstairs in his workshop, this way. Grant, don't be rude. Kean is our guest, she snapped like a turtle, and then turned to Kelly, all honeybee sweet. Would you care for a drink? Kelly answered her with a smile. I am a bit parched, now that you mentioned it. Kelly, is that you? Uncle peered down from the third floor. Aye, Professor McPherson, Kelly shouted. Newly arrived, I am. Uncle clasped his hands together. Well, come up, up, up. Grant, fetch drinks for everyone. Kelly held out his elbow and Payne accepted it. I was left to the fetching. I acted as butler and bartender, doing the cleaning, mixing, and the like. Some 10 minutes later, I carried the silver tray to the top floor. Your drinks, lady and gentlemen. I set the tray on the table that was kept clear just for this purpose. Uncle's workshop was in our former nursery. It covered nearly half of the house, providing space for two children and their nanny. When said nanny quit over a science experiment gone wrong, Payne and I were relocated to bedrooms, leaving the ideal space for a workshop. Kelly was sandwiched between Uncle and Payne, the three of them studying images of finger marks. This set belongs to Childs, he asked. Correct, Uncle Alistair said. I have marked on a stick the position each print was located. As you can see, Mr. Childs did not hold the bat to swing it. He held it by both ends, as to secure it. One set should belong to Jesse Burkett, I said. I can call on him tomorrow and request a set of his prints. The spiders have a game at one o'clock tomorrow, Kelly said. We'll go together. He took a glass from the tray and passed it to my sister. Have you met with the daughter? I did, I said. I provided a summary of our conversation, highlighting the contradiction that Mr. Harper never showed an interest in her, something she reciprocated. Miss Childs is staying with a neighbor until she can return to the house. I visited the dairy on my way home, the one that delivers the milk. The driver confirmed that Emmett Childs was alive at eight this morning. He did not know if he was in the house alone. Is the driver a suspect, Payne asked. A witness, Kelly said, taking a glass for himself one that ties down the time of the assault. Given the state of his bruises, he was attacked very shortly after the milkman's visit. 
Kelly sipped the Irish whiskey my father had bought, especially for him. Collect a sample of the daughter's marks, McPherson, just in case. There's no way to tell male from female finger marks, is there, Professor? Unfortunately, no, Kean. It's possible to tell a child from an adult, but not one sex from the other. Uncle Alistair returned to the photos. If you look at the model, you'll see two sets are in mirror image positions. One set was made using a left-handed grip, the other right-handed. The left-handed ones will likely be Jesse Burkett. When, the, when we three stared at Kelly, he shook his head. You know so much and nothing at all. The crab bats left and throws left. I recalled the image of the man laying on the floor. The bruising on Mr. Child's chest was thicker on the left. I said, Kelly, you can see the end of the bat is thicker here than the rest. He took the full bat across the chest. I'll venture that the fourth set belongs to Miss Child's, Payne said, examining the mock back. Look at the finger positions. The four fingers on both hands are practically in a line. It wasn't held like a sporting equipment or a weapon, but like a prize. Is that the way you would hold it, Kelly asked, inspecting her finger positions? Well, no, not me, Payne admitted, changing to a more conventional grip. But many women, more likely a woman than a man, unless it was your brother, Kelly mocked, taking it from her. I know stuff about sports, I mumbled my defense as the others laughed. Come over here, Kean. Uncle chuckled at my expense as he waved the detective to a station where the bat was held up for inspection by two brackets. He swung a mounted magnifying lens over the knob and there was more than blood and finger marks to be found. Bending over, Kelly stared into the glass. What, what is that? It's skin, Uncle explained, thick and tough, not a single layer, as if peeled from a sunburn, but all the layers. Another oddity, it seems to be dehydrated. Kelly rubbed his jaw. How did skin, in that condition, get onto the bat? A bell chimed from below, calling us to dinner. Enough talk of murder, Payne said, threading her arm through Kelly's, at least until after a good meal. A time to fight. Dinner that night had been served cold, a perfect balance to the heat of the day that refused to dissipate even as the sun dipped toward the horizon. Instead of spending the evening on the swing and enjoying conversation with my family, Kelly had herded me out of the house. Now I sat at a 21 table, betting $2 of the 10 that Kelly had staked me. The detective loomed over my shoulder. You said you knew how to play. Alistair had taught Payne and me to count cards as part of our mathematics lessons. Before Kelly finished, the dealer flipped over his card and busted. Kelly's scowl turned to a tight smile, and it continued to grow as the stack in front of me increased until I had more money than I could earn in a month. I pushed out $10. Kelly snorted but didn't comment. The down card was dealt. I lifted it to find the Ace of Spades. Next came the up card, and it was the sight every player wanted, the Jack of Clubs. The players to my right hit, stayed, busted. On my turn, I flipped the jack over. Black Jack, the dealer called out, and made good on the 10 to one payout. Finally, Kelly said under his breath. A hand was placed on the back of my chair. Mr. Woody congratulates you on your fortuitous luck and invites you to a table for a drink. He was the big, ugly man who used his appearance to his advantage. <coughs> we accept, Kelly said. Pick up the money, McPherson. We sat at the table, held by a man of average height, with a handsome face and black hair. The ape who fetched us took the open seat. Woody Woodmance, the man said. Congratulations on winning my money. Champagne to celebrate? A waitress appeared with glasses and a bottle. Woodman's poured. I sipped. Excellent vintage, I said, appreciating the fine quality. Kelly threw his down his throat without bothering to taste it. Yes, excellent vintage, he said. 
Did you share the same with my friend Emmett Childs when he won your jackpot? <coughs> Woodman smiled. The man doesn't drink. The smile faded, as you would know if you knew him. Who are you, and what do you want? Detective Kean Kelly, he said, setting his glass on the table. And this is Patrolman Grant McPherson, Cleveland Police. We're investigating the murder of Emmett Childs. Murdered? Are crackpots dead? Woodmans looked to the muscle seated next to him. Had you heard, Jimmy? No, Woody, the ape named Jimmy answered. He was in last night and he was fine. Finer than fine. He walked out with over 500. He took a long drink from his beer. Kelly raised an eyebrow, a silent question to me. I shook my head. I hadn't found enough money to be a jackpot. Kelly whistled. Put a dent in your take? Not mine, Woodman said, his fellow players. Crackpot confined his playing to the poker tables. The house takes a percentage. The money won or lost comes from the players. If Mr. Childs walked away with that kind of money, I considered, he would have made more than a few people angry. Jimmy shrugged. A few people got hot, sure. The crab got noisy, but he knew Crackpot beat him squarely. After all, somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. Crackpot, Kelly said. Is that a nickname or an insult? Woody whirled his glass, liquor spinning. An apt description said with admiration and affection. Crackpot was an original. He was a freak with numbers and had this thing about rules. You asked if I was upset he ran the tables on me? Of course I was. But letting him back in was the smartest thing I ever did. About six months ago, he busted a couple of sailors trying to run a hustle. Sat right where you are and explained how it was being pulled off right in front of my best dealer. Crackpot saved me a grand that night. You didn't see anyone lingering after, Kelly asked Jimmy, challenge coloring his voice. Some hide the angry better than others. I had a drink with him, made sure everyone saw Crackpot had friends. Jimmy emphasized the last word, implying a threat without using the word. He left with that deadbeat William Hardy. I don't know what Crackpot saw in him. Hardy, we should ban. Woody rolled his eyes and shook his head. We had an arrangement and he held up his end. It would be bad for business if we ran out our paying customers. How much was Hardy into you for? Kelly asked. Over a hundred, Woody said. His kind are my best customers. They live larger than they can afford to and then come here to make up the difference. It works, occasionally. Probability is not on, on his side, I said. It's on yours. Willie pointed at me, his hand still wrapped around his glass. Correct. Crackpot understood that and incorporated into his decisions. Fellas like Hardy, they bet on wishes and prayers, not odds. Mr. Woodmans, call me Woody, he said with a smile. Oh, well, Woody, I said uncomfortably. You said Hardy held up his end of the deal. What was that deal? He paid his debt, of course, with interest. He finished his drink and signaled for a waitress. Hardy was the first man in the door when Jimmy unlocked it here. He paid his debt and then went to the roulette table. Luck did not go with him. Where did he get the money, Kelly asked. None of my business, Woody said. Any other questions? I have a business to run. Kelly ran his tongue over his teeth. Just one. Where were you this morning from seven to 10? He smirked. Where any self-respecting man would be? In bed. Alone, Kelly pressed. No, detective, I was not alone. But your kind wouldn't take the word of her kind, which is a shame as I'd trust her word over yours any day. Kelly snorted and turned his attention to Jimmy. And you? I was in bed, alone. Jimmy rose from his seat, making it a dare. Kelly stood up too. He looked Jimmy down and then up. A bobtail, are you? A lobcock? Jimmy threw a left hook. No warning, he just landed one on Kelly's jaw. Kelly staggered back, worked his jaw back and forth, and then grinned. Detective Kelly, I shouted. Let's not make trouble unless we have to. We have to, McPherson. Aye, we have to. 
Kelly charged, lowering his shoulder to catch Jimmy in the chest and driving him back into a thick post. Clear the floor, Woody ordered calmly, rising from his seat. Close the tills. The nearest poker table was lifted and moved. The crowd poured in, circling around the pair, money passing hands as bets were made. Kelly was the unknown and a three-to-one underdog. Jimmy threw Kelly off, then followed, bare knuckles making contact in a quick one-two-one. The pair broke apart, circling. The odds upped, five to one. Jimmy stripped off his coat, throwing it to a woman. Kelly backed away, peeled off his coat, and tossed it to me. Hold this, McPherson. Don't hold back, cause he's a cop, Jimmy, Woody shouted. No law in here. The odds doubled again, and I put half my winnings on Kelly. Time for a stretch. Sunday morning was enjoyable for the coffee and breakfast on my father's porch. Payne repotted plants, cutting from here and sticking to there. Father had his face buried in a medical journal, cursing the inanity of somebody back in the old country. Uncle worked to raise finger marks on Woody's glass and Jimmy's beer bottle. I had taken them from the table when the fight started, wrapping them in Kelly's coat to hide them. For myself, I was just happy to have strawberry jam on my scone. A crash came from the kitchen, then Kelly staggered through the door, raising an arm against the sunlight, screamed though it was. McPherson. Yes, here. Poor Kean. Dear Lord, we all said simultaneously. How are you feeling? I asked, rising and pulling out the chair next to me. Kelly fell into it. I feel like a piano landed on my face. Well, that's about the only thing that didn't, I said. The fight hadn't been long. Both men were big and one round was long enough. In the end, Kelly won on a technicality. Jimmy had swayed and then passed out, dropping to the floor. Kelly watched him fall, then did the same, landing on top of his opponent. Woody declared him the last man standing, if only by two seconds, and the winner. I drove home, not knowing what else to do with a beaten, unconscious detective. Father sewed him back together with my assistance. Payne applied poultices to everything else. In the distance, bells chimed. Kelly cocked his head like a dog, his lips visibly counting. His eyes grew large at ten. No time to waste, McPherson, he said, launching himself from the chair, sending it crashing. To the carriage! I ran to keep up. Gone was the lumbering Neanderthal nursing a sore ankle. Here was the man with the mission. I drove at breakneck speed, upsetting the Sunday drive set as I followed Kelly's direction. Into the city, across the Cuyahoga River, and a quick left, and in order to pull over. It's... it's a church, I said, staring up at the spires. To Sunday, isn't it? Come on, we're going to be late. Kelly leapt down, expecting me to follow. But I'm not Catholic. After a service that was far too long, in Latin, and required more kneeling than is needed in a lifetime, we drove to a different kind of chapel, League Park, home of the Cleveland Spiders. It had a line of men and boys pressing to get in. Kelly's face earned us weary stares from the two men posted outside the players-only entrance but his badge and title got us through the door. It took three conversations with three equally suspicious men, the last being Cleveland Spire's manager, Patsy Tabu, before we were talking to the man we wanted. You're here about Mr. Childs. I can't believe anyone would hurt him, Jesse the Crab Burkett told us after Tabu called him out of the locker room. Where did you hear about his death, Kelly asked. From his daughter, he said. I paid a call to her last night. One of the neighbors pointed me to where she was staying. Poor kid is torn up. He shook his head, his lips curled, and then growled. The vultures are circling. I chased away a weasel who wanted to buy the business and the building. He was persistent. I threatened to show him what a Louisville slugger could do to a pretty face like his before he showed some decorum and left. Kelly cocked his head, interested. Funny you should say that, as that's how a child was killed. Tabu put his hand on Burkett's arm, pulling him back. Don't start thinking he meant anything by that. The crab here is known for his colorful language. Ignoring Tabu, Kelly spoke directly to Burkett. The bat used was the one that you... Hey, Patsy, don't you have a game to get ready for? Burkett cut Kelly off, shouldering his manager back toward the locker room. This won't take long. 
Tabu did not want to leave one of his star players in the hallway talking to the police. You in trouble, Jesse? Nah, I didn't do anything to the old guy, Burkett said. He and I got along like regular pals. Still worry, Tabu eventually nodded and left the three of us. Look, Burkett said, that bat was a gift for Patsy. Mr. Childs was fitting it with a watch and a special plate. You're going to have to find another present, Kelly told him. The one you gave Childs was the murder weapon. We found four sets of finger marks on the bat. One of those people killed Emmett Childs. Well, my finger marks are going to be on the bat, Burkett said. The bat was new. I was the only one who touched it. Did you ever swing the bat, Kelly asked. Burkett frowned. Probably. I mean, it's a bat. I never used it in a game. Kelly glanced at me to make sure I was taking this all down. We'd like to take your finger marks, he said, to eliminate you from our suspect list. Burkett stiffened his back and leaned into Kelly. I'm not green, detective. You want to see if I'm your man. Well, I'm not. Nice to know, Kelly said. Tell us, how much did you lose to Childs at the poker table last night? Burkett started to fume. It was an effort for him to hold his tongue. Nothing I couldn't afford. That seems to be the popular answer, Kelly sniped. Can you prove where you were between 7 and 10 yesterday morning? We had a game, Burkett said, sneering. I was home until I came to the ballpark here. Ask anyone. I was here by 10. Kelly nodded. 10, eh? Not exactly a tight alibi. When you asked Childs for this, his blessing to marry his daughter, it must have seemed when he didn't give it to you. I never asked for it, Burkett snapped. And if Sadie said that, she's got a screw loose. She didn't. Heard it somewhere else. Kelly rolled onto the balls of his feet, fists at the ready. Are you going to give me those finger marks? Yeah, Burkett growled. I am. Because I didn't do it, and Sadie deserves to know who did. Time for another look. We returned to Emma Child's home and business. Of interest was the money Childs had been winning from Woody's operation and finger mark for Sadie Childs. Miss Child eased our work some by joining us. She had been staying with the neighbor just two houses down. We were in the shop rather than the house as the blood had yet to be cleaned. Kelly paced, studying the items in the cases as if they were suspects. Are you and Jesse Burkett serious about each other? She blushed. We haven't had that conversation, Detective. Jesse's in the middle of a season. That's where his attention needs to be, and I understand. I thought Burkett would be a fool to walk away from a girl like Sadie. Did you ever handle the bat, Miss Childs? No, I don't think so. She paused. Well, I may have. I work with my father and could have moved it. I don't remember. What about Mr. Hardy, Kelly asked. Would he have handled the bat? I don't see why. She looked around, tears welling in her eyes. I guess all this is mine now. I worked with my father since I was a child, but I never imagined doing this myself. A woman horologist. Who would hire me? My father would, I volunteered. No one has looked at our clock since my mother died. I was 12. Appalled, the tears were displaced by a stern matronly glare. How irresponsible. Do you know what dust and oils do to the inner workings? I glanced at her, the smile I worked to restrain escaping. I'll leave you with his address and let him know to expect you. I hope to be there to hear the lecture you're going to give him. If your father had no enemies, Kelly said, returning to the subject, who were his friends? Who would he have opened the, the family door for and let into the kitchen? She pressed her lips together, truly thinking. My father had many acquaintances, but few friends. In fact, the only one who is here with any regularity is William Hardy. Jesse visited once or twice a week, but that was to see me. Of course, he was courteous to my father and they would talk. No neighbors, I asked? Family? Oh, he would let neighbors in, but he would have made something like coffee, not tea, she said. He would have taken care of whatever item brought them there and then showed them out the back. Father and I are the only family here. Where would he have put the money, Kelly asked. He won several jackpots Friday night. We heard he brought home over $500. She bit her bottom lip, her gaze moving between me and Kelly. Rising, she led us through to the kitchen. 
Well, his normal habit was to put any winnings into the tea tin. She opened the tin that still sat on the counter, tilting it to see inside. He put a little away each week from the business earnings, plus any of his winnings. She frowned. It's empty. There's, there's nothing here but tea. I took the tin from her and, using a plate, poured out the contents. There was nothing but dried tea leaves. I don't understand, she said to Kelly. It seems we found your killer's motive, he said. Your father is very good at poker, Miss Childs. By all accounts, you should be living high. Confused, she shook her head. But we aren't. You see what we have? We are comfortable, but certainly not living high, as you say. Beside his business, did your father have any hobbies, I asked. Perhaps he spent the money there. Father was a tinkerer, patrolman. He had three interests, watches, his garden, and card games. If he wasn't in there, he was out back or at Mr. Woodmance's establishment. We left Miss Childs and went around the block to the address of William Hardy. He allowed us into his home where he was in the middle of unpacking a box of home goods. Have you arrested the fiend who killed Emmett, he asked. We're closer, Kelly said, which was news to me. We understand you were at last night's poker game. Did you notice anyone especially angry about losing a child's? Hardy frowned as he thought. Not especially. The ball players started to get ugly, but Woody's man sat down next to Emmett and that seemed to put an end to it. How much did you lose, Mr. Childs? But how much did you lose to Mr. Childs, I asked, for my notes. For your notes? It's none of your business, he said, his voice low. I work hard for my money and spend it how I like. He set a tin plate down with a slam. Okay, Jack, we're at the deliberation. <clears throat> Sorry, everyone, for the coughing fit there in the middle. <laughs> All right, so time ran out for horologist Emmett Childs. Kelly and McPherson need our help to catch the bandit. Suspects in the order they were introduced. William Hardy, a poker player and Childs' only friend. Sadie Childs, the daughter who was his assistant and who inherits his business. Woody Woodmance, owner of the parlor where Childs and Hardy gambled. Jimmy McKean, muscle for Woody, who kept everyone in line. And Jesse Burkett, star outfielder for the Cleveland Spiders, who is sweet on Sadie. Jesse's a real person. It wasn't him. Jesse is a real person. Is that what I said? You, yeah. I was yeah. just echoing. It can't, it can't be the real guy. We can't. wouldn't do that to poor Jess. <laughs> Man, you were, you were like metagaming this already. I didn't even think that you would go that way with it. <laughs> yeah, it can't be him. I'd be, I'd be kind of pissed if it did because then it's not historically accurate. Not that you didn't make up this whole story or anything. <laughs> you want the facts? Yes. <laughs> Here's the facts as we know them. Emmett Childs was killed on Saturday morning. He was beaten with a baseball bat that was in his shop. There was a bruise across his check, chest, thicker on the left. Couldn't say those two words separately there for thicker a minute. Thicker on the left. Yeah. William Hardy found Childs midday when he called on him to make up for an argument over Hardy being denied permission to marry Sadie. Uh, he was seen entering the house by a neighbor. Uh, the bat had four sets of finger marks on it and a small amount of treated skin pressed into the grains. Childs won the jackpot at the poker game. I kept saying the night before, but by the time I realized I have to edit this for the print version because it was Friday night's poker game, not the uh -huh. night before. For Friday night's poker game, taking money from Hardy, Burkett, and the other players. The jackpot was not found. Sadie was out of the time at the murder. She inherits everything and now has to decide whether to sell or take it over. She acknowledges dating Burkett, but says Hardy was never interested in her or her in him. Woody and Jimmy were at their respective homes asleep. Both were fond of Emmett, who was a good customer. Uh, the same did not extend to Hardy, although he did pay his debt. And Burkett was alone until he arrived at the ballpark at 10. He admits to losing to Childs, but says it wasn't anything he could afford to lose. And he denies asking Childs for permission to wed Sadie. So who should Kelly slap the cuffs on? Hardy. He sounds like an all-around dick. <laughs> Something tells me it's him. Okay. Because all the suspects are, are who. There's Hardy, 
is Jesse, who it can't be because he would never do that to a real person and his <laughs> his legacy. Yeah. I pray. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, the Woody, the owner of the gambling parter, yeah, parlor. Yeah, Woody, Woody wouldn't do that. He he's probably a scumbag and everything, but like, I feel like you know better than to kill people who go to your like gambling hall and lose. Yeah. Well, like, he won. I mean, won. Yeah. But like. Come on. Like, have some brains. If he did it, I'm going to be pissed. Because, like, really? A guy came in, gambled, and won, and you're mad, and like, oh, I'm going to kill him. Dude, you're... No. Well, he said that um, that Emmett didn't win his money because he was playing poker. He won the fellow player's money. He didn't win house money like you would if you were playing blackjack or roulette or something. Oh, then why would he kill him? Nah, it doesn't make sense. Other than he's just like an angry guy. Yeah. Did he come across as an angry guy? Yeah, he came across as a little, uh, yeah. a little, little hot-headed. What about Jimmy, his muscle, the one who got in a fight with? Uh, Jimmy has no thoughts of his own. Okay. Jimmy's hollow. Yeah. Up there. Did you like the fight? The the fight that we didn't see. That All we heard, heard was that he got into the fight, and the next morning, I guess he kind of won. <laughs> Technically, he won. Technically. So you're going with Hardy. I'm going with Hardy Har Har. Hardy Har Har. All right. Time for an answer. The scene was set Monday afternoon in our large meeting room at police headquarters. The front wall was, I'm sorry, the front wall was shelves on the bottom, windows on the top that overlooked our bullpen. Men strolled by, other members of the Cleveland police, trying to look like they weren't looking inside. On the far side of the table sat the grieving daughter. The open windows behind her did little to cool her in the high neck black dress. The arm wrapped around her belonged to Jesse the Crab Burkett, who looked ready to tear apart anyone stupid enough to make her cry. Opposite them, with their ba- backs to the Burkett fans, were Woody Woodman and his man Jimmy McKean. They had given Sadie their condolences and now sat watching Kelly their attitude unperturbed. The man at the foot of the table, part of neither group, was William Hardy. He repeatedly glanced at the long windows, uncomfortable with the audience. Kelly sat in the seat of honor. Thank you for coming, he said. We're very close to making an arrest in this murder case. As you know, Mr. Childs was killed in his home, and while it has been postulated that it was because he denied his blessing to wed his daughter, We now know it was about something simpler, money. Childs had it, somebody wanted it, and that somebody is one of you five. Gasps and denials filled the room. Burkett fumed, Jimmy seethed, Woody laughed, Hardy was shocked, and Sadie was in denial. Sadie shook her head, but, Kelly interrupted, his hand up, please, Miss Childs, we found finger marks on on the murder weapon. Mr. Burkett's back. Boy, that sentence, I just butchered it. Let's try it again. Kelly interrupted, his hand up. Please, Miss Childs, we found finger marks on the murder weapon. Mr. Burkett's back. Mr. Childs, Miss Childs, Mr. Burkett's, and one identified set of prints were found. That unidentified set belongs to our killer. Jimmy, Woody, and Mr. Hardy, I need to collect your finger marks. We had Woody and Jimmy's finger marks, not that they knew it, What we didn't have were Hardy's. Woody threw up his hands. This is entrapment. You can't do this without a warrant. Stay where you are, Jimmy. Hardy looked at the gambling house boss and followed his lead. No warrant, no prints. Kelly pointed a thick finger toward Woody. You make me get a warrant, and I'm going to ask for access to a lot more than your finger marks. Maybe you have the money that Mr. Childs won, still streaked with his blood. To find it, I'm going to have to look everywhere. Woody sneered. Seconds passed as he figured the odds. Fine, he erupted. Take our finger marks. You aren't going to find them on that bat. I moved to the end of the table between Woody and Hardy, setting out the tools to take the marks. It's, it's not legal, Hardy said, his voice breaking. He can't do it. He can't if I volunteer, Woody said. Let's get this over with, kid. Hardy rose to his feet. I'm not agreeing to this. I had nothing to do with Emmett's death, and I will not subject myself to this insult. Kelly leaned forward, his forearms on the table. 
Where did you get the money to repay your debt to Mr. Woodmance? Hardy blinked, rapidly and too much. I looked at him. We all looked at him. You don't have to answer, Kelly said. I already know it was Mr. Child's jackpot. That's where you, a tanner's hand, got the money for the new dishes, for a new coat, to pay back your gambling debt. Hardy's expression changed from defiance to shock to outrage. You have no proof, none. Miss Childs, do not listen to their lies. Sadie was agog. She turned her head between Hardy, Kelly, and Burkett. You didn't plan to kill him, Kelly continued. You wanted a loan. When he turned you down, the tea tin where you knew he kept the money was so close you could practically smell it. You snapped. You probably ran through all the ways to take the money and came to the conclusion that there was only one way to keep it. You went into the shop, and Emmett rose from the table, curious, I suspect. He didn't know what you had in mind when you came back to, with the bat. He didn't defend himself from that first blow, did he? But the rest, he fought for his life. A story, Hardy said, his bravado wavering. You still have no proof. We do, I said, as I closed to him. There was tanned skin on the bat. It had been produced with chemicals. The leather was from mid-process and could only come from a tannery. Is that what gave me away, he asked, looking at his hands. Not the only thing, Kelly said. You told us you went out the front door to seek help, but the door was locked until I opened it. A small lie to cover a bigger lie. You had visited the child's home earlier, just after the milkman left, entering by the back door. When you left, you had the jackpot and the bat with you. The later you disposed of with the hedge as you hurried home. You returned hours later to discover the body, only to find that Mr. Childs wasn't dead. This time you were seen going in, forcing you to act. No, Hardy shook his head adamantly. Yes, Kelly said, talking over any argument. You tried to blame Mr. Burkett, but the crab is left-handed. The bruising on the chest pointed to a righty. Mrs. Childs, Miss Childs was visiting her aunt. Woody and Jimmy, whether they were or weren't asleep that time of day, would not hurt one of their best debt-free customers. Sadie clutched onto Burkett. Mr. Hardy, what did you do? A desperate man, he wiped at his mouth. Nothing. If he just would have loaned me the money, he won every night. Hardy broke for an open window, falling out of it. I raced after him, sliding out and landing on my feet. Hardy had fallen and was stumbling, struggling for balance. I lunged, wrapping my arm around his legs and taking him down. Kelly invited himself to dinner that night on the premise of telling me that Sadie Childs had found pots of money. Thanks to a tip from Woody Woodmance, she dug up the shrubs known as money trees. Nearly $20,000, Kelly said as he sat on the porch swing with pain. If she sells the business, she'll be nicely set until she marries. Do you think she and Jesse Burkett will marry, Payne asked. Kelly shrugged. Who's to say? The child's woman is coming here on Thursday, father said. She thinks she can get my wife's clock working again. That was after the lecture I received on the care of clockworks. It looks like you two closed another case. We did, Kelly said. One last string. I pulled a envelope from my inside pocket and handed it to Kelly. Half of my winnings, plus your original stake. He opened it and whistled. Woodman's asked about you. He wants a chance to win his money back. Maybe, I said. Father, uncle, I'd like to move back in. The money I save on rent added to the seed money. I just may be able to own my own house before I'm 40. As my family welcomed me back home, Kelly stood and offered his hand to Payne. Could I tempt you with a dish of ice cream, Miss Payne? I know a lovely parlor. To my dismay, she smiled back and rose. The end. Was it too obvious that it was Hardy? Uh. Whoops. Uh, it wasn't that obvious. I mean, kind of. <laughs> Thing is that nobody else had a real motive, you know? Like, they all had a kind of reason, but, like, the gamblers or, like, the the hall owners, yeah, they had the ability to have done that. They definitely presented themselves to people who could have and would have. They had no reason. No. I try to make it 
if you if you kind of caught that you know he said he ran out the front door and the front door was locked that that was the start of that this man is not telling the truth and there's a weird string of lies there was a weird string of lies you see, a lot of times stories like this get confusing when you have every character lying, but when you discover that there's only one, even just a small one, you're like, okay, that guy's lying, and no one else seems to be. There's something fishy with that guy. Yeah. I mean, there certainly could have been some sort of weird circumstance where, like you said, you know, Jimmy went after him because what he said to, but why? But why? But That's why? what it always leads to. And then Jesse, again, has no reason Yep. You know, there's no, oh, we had an argument last night. Oh, we disagreed. Yeah. There was the. Just a hot tempered person. It's a hot tempered person. And there's that weird thing where he thought Jesse had asked for her hand in yeah. marriage and he had said, no, you can't do that. Yeah. But that ended up being a lie or something. Well, that was um, another lie that Hardy told. Yeah. And then luckily Sadie didn't know anything about it. So she was able to back jesse up with like no we haven't we haven't even talked about that yeah so as you said jesse burkett and patsy tebo were real players for the cleveland spiders boy i went down a research rabbit hole when i was looking this up um burkett is seemed to be a really cool guy that's why i kind of latched on to him he was one of the best players and led in the batting statistics he went on to have a long career as a player and then a manager uh I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce Tabo's last name, so I probably butchered it. But he was a player manager for the 1895 series, and that's the one where Cleveland won the Temple Cup, which is a precursor to the World Series. And from the records, the summer of 1895, Wuds won for the record books in Cleveland and elsewhere, where temperatures soared in a period that predated the luxury of air conditioning. So, a little bit about jackpots. So the first known use of the word jackpot was in 1865, according to Merriam-Webster. It was a hand or a game of draw poker in which a pair of jacks or better was required to open. So the game still played today, but largely isn't known by that name. Um, I think often it's just called jacks or better. Today, the more common meaning of the word jackpot is a type of prize in a game where the value of the prize accumulates because of unwon prizes, so like a lottery. The consistent part of all the definitions is that the game or contest isn't necessarily won each time it's played, and that the money from the non-winning games is carried over. Interestingly, there was a third definition, cited chiefly in the western U.S., where jackpot means a tight spot or a jam. That is certainly not the way we use the word here in the Midwest. I put a link to Merriam-Webster in the show notes. Read something from the dictionary once a day and you'll learn something that entertains you. I also looked up the word crackpot because I wanted to make sure that I could use that. And that term was first coined in 1883. It means given to erratic or wildly foolish notions. One of the most interesting things about this word is that there's only one definition and it has the same meaning as it did in 1883. Uh, so when I scrolled down, there was a kid's version, a kid's definition, and it says a crazy or a very strange person, which was actually more of the definition that I was familiar with than the given to erratic or widely foolish notions. Which one did you know, Jack? Neither. Whoops. Is my, is my mic? My mic is on. There we yeah. go. Neither. You didn't know either? Uh, I don't know. You Crackpot know. just sounds like crackhead, so that's kind of uh -huh. how I associated it. Huh. No, no. I wanted to share, finally, the other place that I went down some rabbit holes was I wanted some insults that were time period appropriate. So in writing the story, I did some, some of my light research, and thank you to Mental Floss for your 2018 article on Francis Gross's a classical definition of the vulgar tongue, tongue, vulgar tongue, which was first published in 1785. They called it to their top 25, and here are my favorite five. So a bobtail, which is the word that I use in the story, is a lewd woman or one that plays with her tail, also an impotent man or a eunuch. Lobcock is a large relaxed penis, also a dull innate fellow. I thought both of those would get Jimmy and, and Key and Kelly in a fight. 
Then there is an unlicked cub, which is a rude, uncouth young fellow. And that one actually felt kind of sad because like somebody's mama didn't take care of him. There's shagbag, which means a poor, sneaking fellow, a man of no spirit. And then a shabaroon, a ill-dressed, shabby fellow, also a mean-spirited person. With that, I want to introduce you to another podcast if you love mysteries. Mystery lovers, have you heard of Mystery Rats Maze podcast? Lori Lewis Ham and Kings River Life Magazine bring you mystery short stories, first chapters of mystery novels, read and brought to life by local actors. Listen to the episodes and subscribe to the podcast. You can go to their website, mysteryratsmaze.podbean.com. The link is in the show notes. And just because it's my story, I'll give you a little about me, even though you guys probably know this. But like you, I'm not one thing. I'm a writer, an engineer, a wife, and a mother. What is first on the list depends on the day. Beyond the title that I claim, I'm a person who loves learning and thoroughly enjoys a good puzzle. I'm creative, and I get bored very easily. My guilty pleasures are Victorian and Regency romances, so I thought I'd try my hand at this period mystery. It's set in 1895 in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. I hold a bachelor's in civil engineering from Case Western Reserve University and a master's in civil engineering from Cleveland State University, which gives me absolutely no background in writing, but I do it anyway. Writing mysteries and engineering isn't as different as you think. Both require the use of logic and process to get from starting a problem to a solution. That wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Please do support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. Check out our website, tgwolf.com forward slash podcast, blah, 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 for links to the authors this season. Mysteries to Die For is hosted by T.G. Wolf and Jack Wolf. The Crackpot's Jackpot was written by me, T.G. Wolf. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by T.G. Wolf. Join us next week for a toe tag. That is a first chapter of a fresh new release in the mystery, crime, or thriller genre. And then be back in two weeks to find out what mayhem Detective England Conley is up to in Detective Conley Gets Audio Jacked by Jack Wolf. All right, Jack, take us out. <laughs>